Welcome to the Elevation Podcast. This podcast seeks to explore everything from mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. We aim to help you increase your performance, recovery, and optimization with your mind and body. Get ready to get elevated. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Elevation Podcast. With me today is Dr. Michelle Stone. Michelle has a PhD in children's physical activity and health, a master's in kinesiology, a bachelor of science, and a bachelor of physical health education. She's an assistant professor for pediatric physical activity and health uh, in kinesiology at Dalhousie University, and her research mainly focuses on enhancing children's opportunities for physical activity, physical literacy, and active outdoor play. And she led the play project, which is physical literacy in the early years, um, which is a childcare based outdoor play loose parts intervention. Um, And we're going to get more into that later in the podcast. Um, But yeah, welcome to the show, Michelle. Thanks for coming. Thanks very much for inviting me, Tanner. Um, so is there anything else from other than I listed there that you want to kind of add about yourself uh, for the people listening, just so they know kind of who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, yeah, I think you covered the basics there. Um, so part of my position at Dalhousie, I'm also um, a research associate with the Healthy Populations Institute at Dalhousie. So um, kind of interdisciplinary health researchers whose goal is really focused on um, promoting population-based health. Um, and then I am um, scientific staff at the IWK uh, Health Center here in Halifax. Um, given my work kind of focuses on enhancing children's health, uh, primarily through physical activity, uh, I do work with some patient populations um, within the IWK. Awesome. Um, and yeah, I think we're definitely going to dive into like all things of uh, the importance of like physical activity as like youth and then how that carries over to adulthood, um, which is super important for like motor skills and all that, uh, which we, if I remember correctly, we're definitely going to get into that when we talk about the uh, play project. Um, but to kind of lay the groundwork, do you want to just kind of talk about like your background, like how you got into school and what led you from your first degree to your second degree to your master's like what kind of took you on this path of doing what you do now perfect yeah um it's it's always an interesting question and i love hearing other people's stories of kind of the path they've taken and um kind of how it how it deviated and the different experiences that they've had so 
um, you know, my real interest in the area, I guess, kind of grew when I was doing my undergrad at Queen's University. Um, and I was taking a class uh, by a physical activity epidemiologist, um, Dr. Peter Kazmarzik, who now works in the, U uh, in the US. And so Peter was really talking about the childhood obesity epidemic um, and it being, you know, one of the uh, pressing concerns of our time with more and more children um, becoming heavier, less fit, having associated health conditions and, um, you know, really setting the stage for, for future chronic disease, um, not just in Canada, but worldwide. So he was showing some pretty stark figures um, of how uh, the proportion of uh, overweight and obese children had changed over time in Canada. And that really got my intention into, um, into the topic and into the role of physical activity in terms of preventing chronic disease. Um, and I started working with some other uh, physical activity epidemiologists um, and had heard about uh, a children's health researcher who was at the University of Saskatchewan, Dr. Mark Trombley. And I mentioned him a lot. Um, in my courses, because Mark is really, you know, our leading expert in terms of children's physical activity and, and health research. Um, he's at the forefront of all of this. He developed the participation physical activity report cards and has kind of really, um, you know, expanded the field um, in how we know activities related to health outcomes in kids. So I got in touch with Mark um, and was looking to pursue graduate school with the intention of kind of getting involved in physical activity uh, intervention research with children. And so I went out to the University of Saskatchewan to do a master's. Um, and at the time, Mark was uh, getting involved in the Canadian Health Measures uh, Survey, another, <laughs> another big thing that I talk a lot about in my classes. And so the CHMS was focused on measuring uh, physical activity and health indicators in the Canadian population, but through objective measures. So replacing kind of uh, questionnaires, self-reports and getting objective data on activity, behavior and health. Um, and Mark really was involved in validating objective measures of physical activity. And so I came on board his team and got into the world of accelerometers. Um, so measuring children's physical activity through objective accelerometers. Um, and that's what my research, my master's research was focused on, trying to see which ones were the most uh, valid, reliable, accurate uh, for use in this national study. Um, and so I finished that off and then realized, um, you know, I really, I really liked graduate school. I didn't want to stop, but wanted to have a different type of experience um, and go abroad. And so Mark had put me in touch with some colleagues at um, the University of Exeter in the Children's Health and Exercise Research Center. And so I traveled out there and I met with them, again, really hoping to do physical activity intervention research um, and got out there and started working with some other children's physical activity specialists um, who, again, were using accelerometry, but wanted to look at it, uh, to use it to look at, um, can we measure children's physical activity with accelerometers and how can we explore that activity data in relationship to health outcomes, measures of body fatness or um, fitness, um, cardiovascular health and, and whatnot. So that's really what my PhD focused on was the relationship between these children's physical activity profiles and health indicators. Um, so I had a great experience there. I met um, my husband, uh, Dan Stevens, who's um, uh, who's also uh, within the Division of Kinesiology. And then we came um, to Toronto, where I'm from. Uh, we ended up getting postdocs, myself at U of T uh, and Dan over at St. Mike's Hospital. 
And so I got to work there with an exercise psychologist, Dr. Guy Faulkner, who's now at UBC. Um, so I started doing some work on active transportation, um, school travel planning, again, measuring children's physical activity behavior, and then also getting into kind of the physiology re or the psychology research story and using kind of multi-methods, quantitative and qualitative data. Um, and so I, we stayed there for a couple of years and then we started looking for um, uh, faculty positions. And so we'd never been to the East Coast before uh, and a position came up at Dow uh, in 2012. And so we came out here and fortunately we, we've managed to find more secure positions, both kind of um, teaching and doing research within kinesiology. So that's kind of our, our journey um, in a way. And only now am I really starting to do physical activity intervention and research in terms of the play project and, and outdoor play. So it's, you know, it started with that passion kind of years and years ago when I was a student. And then I kind of went, you know, in a, in a funny way, um, different way to kind of get at it, but I'm, I'm able to do that, that work now. Awesome. Yeah. You got there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's sweet. That's a really good recap. Um, kind of a good, like a point I thought of as you were talking about all of that stuff in terms of um, children's physical activity and health. Cause like there are so many components like psychology is what drives people to do what they're doing. Like, it's easy to say exercise more, eat less, but like you need to know how to make that happen with someone's psychology. And then also kids don't have that like high level of thinking yet. Like they kind of, they don't know like what they need to do or not do mm -hmm. um, in terms of like, they're gonna, you know, exercise if they like it or like their environment and their parents can have a, a large influence on that. So like, if you think evolutionarily, you never would have had to regulate these things. Like people were outdoors all the time, moving around. Like we are animals at the end of the day. Like we were gathering our food, hunting our food, building shelters and stuff. So it was never a thing that needed to be thought of. It just, it's kind of part of what we should be doing anyways. But you fast forward to now we have transportation taking us everywhere and a crazy abundance of food. I think I remember from your class, the graph of like increased uh, uh, transportation, like the automobile in, invention of the automobile or something and trending that with like weight gain. And then also the increased abundance of very calorie dense food uh, for a very cheap cost, like uh, the fast food industry, I think. I don't know if I'm getting this perfectly, but something like that. And you put those two factors together someone can drive to the drive-through spend $15 and get probably their daily intake of calories that they would need in one meal like it's two uh, factors that are so big that would have never occur occurred naturally until humans created those two things so I think the research is important to like get kids physically active and educated about like eating properly because that's like the groundwork for the rest of your life. It's really hard if you learn from age, well, when you're born basically to, you know, going off to live on your own, these, these habits, the first 18 years of your life, like 
it's really hard to change those deeply ingrained ways of living. Um, so I think it's really important for people to like understand this. Um, and kind of one other point going off of that, I remember <clears throat> from your class at the beginning, it was basically the key takeaway after you look at all the research and all of these studies is physical activity is insanely good for you. It basically regulates every part of your body and functioning sleep, just like cancer preventing properties, helping with cancer treatment, like all of these things. And it's almost so much that when you tell someone who doesn't like really understand the importance of physical activity and like, uh, you know, cardio and resistance training, you say it's literally good for everything, but it's almost too simplified of a statement. They don't get what that means. Like they're like, Oh yeah. Like I get it. Like it's good for me. It's good for everything. But it's like, no, like if you actually give them some specific examples, like, Oh, Holy shit. Like, I didn't know that. I remember, I forget if it was in yours or Dan's class, but uh, using it as a uh, treatment for cancer, like framing the, it was a Ted talk, I think. Yeah. Framing the framing exercise as like kind of a treatment before saying exercise and giving like all the benefits, like 60% increased survival or uh, 40 to 60% increased effectiveness of cancer treatment and like uh, greater ability to tolerate the treatments. Therefore you can get more treatments, uh, normalizes the blood vessels around cancer cells. So more of the drug can get to the uh, cells and then your body actually produces more immune cells from exercise to fight cancer. So like even that, just that one little thing, maybe people heard that they're like, whoa, I didn't know that. Like it goes so much further than that in terms of what exercise can do for you. So just kind of a point I've thought of that's like, not funny, but like, when people say it's good for everything, they're not joking, like we our body needs to do it. So I guess my point is, I think uh, children's physical activity and health is extremely important because of all of the things I just said, it like lays the groundwork for adulthood. So I don't know any thoughts on that. That was a bit of a rant there, but no, no, I think you touched upon some important points in there, right? Um, you know, we need to think of exercise as medicine, right? And that's where the whole exercise is medicine approach and philosophy and efforts, um, I think, is helping to raise people's um, attention just on how essential it is. You know, we need we need physical activity, we need movement to survive. And even, and I personally, I don't like the term exercise. Um, I know why it's using, uh, why it's used in the sense to kind of, to promote activity behavior, but it, for me, it's really about movement. So switching from not moving, sitting too much to moving, and that's where you get your biggest health benefit. And I think that's the message that has to get across. You don't necessarily need to go out um, you know, and do a 30 minute run, um, you know, five days a week. Yes, that brings different benefits, added benefits, but arguably in terms of population health, you really need to get people moving from, you know, just sitting to standing and moving and walking and engaging in light activity. Um, and you're right, we need to kind of get across those more specific health benefits, um, particularly when we think about chronic disease prevention or even chronic disease treatment and management to, to get individuals thinking that, you know, 
yes, if you, if you've been given a diagnosis of breast cancer or prostate cancer or, um, or diabetes or other types of things, um, you may take medication or you may go through various treatments. Um, but you need to almost see physical activity as an essential part of that treatment or an essential part of the prevention, um, because it's just as valuable, if not more so than all those other things. And so really getting across that message, I think, is critical. And then equipping people who are in positions to give that advice with the knowledge is also critical. And that's where the exercises medicine concept is really important, making sure physicians have toolkits or can give referrals to individuals who can um, help their patients uh, incorporate movement into their activity, into their daily lives and, um, and see the benefits of it. So... Yeah. And then all that goes back to kind of those early habits, right? Which is where my research um, is, you know, starting in the, in the early years, um, making sure that children have opportunities for movement um, because you're right. I mean, that lays the groundwork for healthy behaviors later in night, later in life. Awesome. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Um, the general pop just needs, like, if you look at the research or whatever, and obviously you have much more experience with this. So tell me if I'm wrong, but from what I've read and understood, it's just like, you just got to get up and move. You're going to get generic number here, 60% improvement in health. If you just get off the couch and go for a walk or something, you don't have to be crazy with it, but then you kind of move out of that as people who are already exercising, which probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast, because I do get into like high performing stuff, you're still going to keep getting added benefit from like, you know, step, step one, get moving, you know, try to start eating some healthier foods. Step two, maybe like have an exercise goal to work towards step three. Maybe you want to compete now that you've been getting in shape, like maybe go like do a 5k run, you know, as this kind of integrates as part of your identity as like exercise, we're kind of moving away from like, maybe from here, we're moving away from the uh, physical activity guidelines for the general population. But uh, I think like psychologically for people listening, it's good to hear like, get moving, but don't stop after you get moving. Once you get moving, there's should always be a next thing you're kind of working towards in terms of health. Cause like, if you can get your body capable of running like a 10k or like a 20k which 20k is pretty extreme like i don't know if i could go out and do a 20k right now maybe a 10k i'd I'd be hurting pretty bad after that um i mainly do other types of training but if you can get to that point the amount your body needs to work at rest is like nothing i think you showed uh like endothelial functioning of a like an ultra marathon or something Mm -hmm in one of the lectures last year and it just showed like it was a lot better I think is the key takeaway from that like it just the the photo of each uh blood vessel or artery was just way healthier because this person's body has been training for this their whole life like it's its capacity is so much greater than when it's resting whereas if you're sitting around all the time those things are stiffening up you're not uh, vasodilating and Mm -hmm. constricting as much. So you lose that ability a little bit. Um, and then again, like getting into resistance training, like bone mineral density and stuff, like 
super beneficial, especially for women who are more prone to like decreased bone mineral density and all that. Um, so I think kind of got off track there, but general point I kind of was thinking to make was good to start with get moving like population level. You just got to get up, but work towards kind of lifting a weight, uh, going for a run, structuring some sort of like routine and around it in a way that you enjoy it. So for me, like I enjoy resistance training. That's what I mainly do. I don't run that much, but like I am definitely getting cardiovascular benefit from high rep sets in the gym, not the same as like a marathon runner, but, uh, anyways, yeah. Uh, on my podcast with Jeff, he, he mentioned the mar- the, uh, Ironman athletes or the triathletes that you, he said, you can tell when they're crossing the finish line because, and actually I think that was the last episode. So if people went from that episode to this episode, <laughs> they'll be <laughs> basically coming right off of that. But he said, you can tell the people who lifted a weight and the people who've never touched a dumbbell before. Cause like the ones that haven't are crippled when they cross the finish line and the ones that have their bodies resilient enough. So anyways, kind of going off the scope of what we're talking about here, but I thought it was a good thing to mention in terms of like goals to work towards. You don't have to start wanting to do an Ironman, start just moving. Uh, and we can get more into the recommendations that, uh, that you would be giving to like parents and stuff. Yeah. And I, and I think what you're, you know, what you're touching upon are, is the variety of activity, right? So, you know, right from an early age, if we're thinking about kids, you want to be ensuring that you're giving kids to be active through a variety of different opportunities, you know, unstructured play, which I believe has immense benefits more so in some ways than structured activities, but also structured activities. Um, but it's building up the physical competence, so their physical skill sets, their fundamental movement skills, but also the child's own confidence and motivation and kind of desire to be to get involved in lots of different activities. Um, so I think that's really key, right? Because if you can equip children with the capacity to be active through a variety of different ways in a variety of different environments, then they're going to have that confidence and competence to kind of maintain those habits throughout their life and to engage in lots of different types of, of activities that's going to benefit their, their, um, you know, their health. Yeah. And they're going to want to do it. It's not, yeah, well, they're going to have the confidence to do it. I mean, that's what it really gets at. If you, if you're not, uh, if you're not giving children the opportunities to be active in lots of different ways and to try different things out, to have the freedom and space to kind of, you know, direct their own play and unstructured play and take risks and get confidence and all of that, then they are going to start to shy away from physical activity. Um, You know, they're going to lose that confidence. They're going to lose that motivation. They're going to start to become more sedentary. And I think those habits start to become more ingrained as, you know, you start to get older and you're in more restrictive environments and schools and the workplace and others where, you know, moving is often not the priority, right? So that is why it's important to start young, but also, I guess, to ensure that, you know, the places and spaces that children, and then once they become teenagers and adults and so on, are really supportive of movement and recognize it as kind of essential. Yeah, definitely. And um, 
early that's also why like early specialization in sport is really detrimental too right like i've uh maybe that was also oh that might have been sports psychology anyways (laughs) many classes that talk about um because you're not even they're not it's not even giving the kids a chance to develop a well-rounded set of motor skills because they're just developing that one sports motor skills and like not giving them that kind of chance to like like uh unstructured outdoor play like they're learning how to move their body in so many different ways when they do that. Whereas like, if you just put a kid on the ice to play hockey and like from day one, you're trying to just make them a pro hockey player. You're not only probably screwing them mentally, probably pretty bad in a lot of cases, but you're also not going to get the best athlete. Even if that is like your selfish goal (laughs) of like forcing your kid to do one thing. Um, you're, they're still just going to be less well, like not as well-rounded of an athlete because they're not developing all those motor skills. Is that like kind of? Yeah, how it works? I think I think, and I I think sport um, for life and you know other uh, bodies, they're they've moved towards a long-term athlete development model, right? And so, um, which we talked about in class, and there's different tiers of um, um, you know active um, active start and fundamentals and all the different levels of trying to kind of ensure that children are exposed to different environments so that they can gain diverse fundamental movement skills in a, through a variety of different types of, of activities and then develop those more sport specific complex skills. And so really you want a child to, to be exposed to a lot of different physical activity opportunities um, to be able to take part in lots of different types of activities and sports. And then they can kind of choose what it is that they might have a preference for. So we're moving away from that real sports specialization where we have seen the detriments of it and a lot of athletes kind of burning out and then, or, you know, not making, um, you know, it professionally or achieving kind of that sports specialization kind of level playing professionally. Um, They may burn out, they may drop out. And then because of that, they don't have, those skill sets to engage in other types of physical activity. So they may just kind of um, move away from physical activity or exercise altogether. Right. And so I think a lot of the work and the research has shown the detriments of that. And that's why, you know, we see more value on this term of physical literacy, this holistic concept of ensuring that, you know, um, individuals have, um, you know, the, the physical and psychological kind of skill sets to be active for life in a variety of different contexts and then that's what's most important obviously like um because a lot of time athletes also get like the i forget what it's called the identity crisis like once they're done sport if that's all they did was that one sport like like what do i do now even if they didn't like purely specialize that's a big factor but I, i can only imagine it'd be worse if all you did was one and you didn't have other ones that you could kind of you know recreationally fall back on Yeah. Um, Sweet. So kind of we can move away from sport a bit here uh, and we'll get into maybe outdoor play, unstructured outdoor play and like risk taking. Um, Mm -hmm. And then maybe how an interesting um, idea that popped up when I was kind of outlining uh, some points here for the podcast was the balance of uh, like risk taking and the emotional perception of parents like wanting to keep their kids safe because i i can only imagine 
and I imagine one day when I have kids, it will be very real is it's very hard to be objective when you're viewing through a lens of wanting to keep your kids safe. So it's like, at what point are you viewing it clearly? Like, oh, I should stop this from happening. And at what point should you just let them run free? Um, so yeah, maybe just start with like what outdoor play is unstructured and why risk taking is important. Just kind of go through your general, whatever you, you think. <laughs> well, this is my passion. This is kind of where I've moved. Um, I guess starting probably in 2015 or 2016 and I've got two kids, right. And as you know, I've got a six-year-old now and a four-year-old. So it, the passion for unstructured outdoor play grows even more kind of as I see the benefits that it brings to them. Um, you know, I think what I've learned really since that time and through colleagues and others who have been involved in this work for much longer than me is, um, you know, just how critical play is in a child's life. And so when you think of play, um, you know, it's a universal right and it's recognized as a universal right from by the United Nations. And so, um, and many people don't, probably don't even know that or recognize that in that children have a right to play and it's essential for their development, health and wellness. Um, and so with, you know, increased advocacy around that um, Outdoor Play Canada, um, you know, has been a huge part of that now. The position statement on active outdoor play has highlighted the value of outdoor play and risk taking to children's health and development. Others are starting to kind of recognize it as not just a frivolous activity, um, but as it's essential for development, for health, for wellness, for learning, um, for a whole host of things. And we are seeing that when kids are deprived to play, particularly playing the outdoors, there's severe consequences to their health and development. Um, and so I can't remember if it was Ken 1102 or HAP2000, but I, I've talked about a psychologist who one of his articles I find really interesting and I share it with students, um, Peter Gray, and he wrote about the decline in play and the rise in psychopathology in children and, and adults and adolescents. And so and these historical declines in children's opportunities to play. Um, and alongside of that, we've seen this kind of rise in mental health issues. So an increase in depression and anxiety and feelings of helplessness and narcissism and loss of control. And, you know, all of these struggles that children and adolescents are, are having. And he kind of postulated there's a relationship between the two. Um, and there's a there's a lot of good rationale for that when you look into the play literature so you know when children play and when they have the opportunity to kind of direct their own play and engage in unstructured play where adults are not directing it for them um, you know they're learning about themselves and the world around them they're learning how um, to kind of solve problems um, they're learning how to be creative they're learning how to negotiate and play with others and build relationships and they're learning how to move their bodies and to take risks. And by taking risks, they have to negotiate certain scary situations, but there's a big thrill in that for kids. And that's so critical for them to figure out what do I think I'm capable of? Um, can I try it out? Can I problem solve and, and learn how to master this movement or this activity? And the real confidence and joy and sense of achievement that kids get through that is, is central, right? To kids' self-esteem. Um, 
and their learning um, and also their resilience, you know, through, through playing outdoor play, kids can fail at certain things and failure and learning how to deal with failure is a good thing. Right. And moreover, you know, when kids are directing their own activities and failing and learning through that, it, it makes them more resilient. So as I say, the more I delve into the literature, the more passionate I get because, and especially having young kids myself, I just see, you know, the, the essential nature of play and, and, and being outdoors and, and being in nature and how that can be restorative and um, alleviate a lot of like the health concerns that we're having today. So, Sweet. Yeah, a couple before I forget, there's a bunch of stuff that I thought <laughs> of while you're saying all that. Um, first of first of all, I guess one thing that I thought was um, sorry, I'm just going to write <laughs> the so you said like the importance of like failure and then learning from failure and all that stuff and building self-esteem based on that, like they can fail and then they can go back and like learn from it that just instantly makes me think of participation trophies and like I've read some on that being quite detrimental because it's uh falsely um building self-esteem so like the kid might subconsciously know that they didn't actually win and they got rewarded for it so they feel it's like this delicate self-esteem that can lead to more maybe tying it back into what you're saying with the uh, mental health uh, issues with, you know, they didn't actually learn failure from that. Like they didn't have that lesson or they didn't, you know, get to navigate what that feels like. They just kind of reward, reward, reward. And then instead of like, good job, but, you know, next time do this. And like, it doesn't necessarily need to be like first place trophies all the time. I think like most improved player or most improved, like even if it's not a team, just like most improved something, you don't have to be the best, but something that shows like, oh, you figured out what you did wrong the last time and then you did better on it, then reward. And then it kind of like is doubling down on like their natural reward because they probably already know, oh, yay, I did it this time or like, I climbed higher up on the tree this time than I did last time, but then you also kind of reinforce that positively with something. Um, do you have any thoughts on participation trophies? Oh, it's a tricky subject. I mean, I, I think I, I can see both sides of it. You know, when I was active and playing sport, um, you know, we had the system where, you know, if, if, if you won the majority of the games throughout, you know, the, the, the summer or whatever, I played soccer, right? And so it was always competitive. We were always trying, you know, to win and to win games and so that you could get to the top of the league and win, you know, the championship trophies, right? So that was the way that I was brought up in my major sports, soccer and volleyball and basketball were the ones that I kind of played. Um, and it has shifted since then where my own kids now are engaging in sport and they, they play soccer in kind of a community leave. And so, you know, there are the medals for participating. Um, it's just fun. It's more on movement and just having fun and um, gaining some skills, but there's not that competitive edge to it yet. Um, which I think is, is good to get children moving and active and, and getting that love of movement and trying different things out. 
So I think that's where it needs to start, but I do, I do see the benefits of, you know, and this is in the LTAD model, as children start to get older, you start to introduce more skillful play or tactics into the play or, you know, rules and game-like situations. And so you start to get into more that level, level of competitiveness. So I think there's almost a, there needs to be a natural transition to it because, you know, you're, you're right. There are benefits in terms of, um, of, of being in competition and sometimes winning and sometimes learning and failing and, and learning through that. That's so critical, but you don't want to have that, um, you know, the competitiveness and the failure set in too early to kind of disengage kids from activities, if that makes sense. Right. So more of like a balance, like if they're, you know, I don't know what age, but below a certain age, maybe don't stress too much on competition, but as they're getting older, you don't want to just keep giving participation trophies. Maybe like maybe at a certain age, it's time to be like, okay, now there is competition. There's rules to follow. There's winners and losers in certain contexts. And like, that's definitely important for life skills, uh, playing by rules, knowing how to like navigate those rules and still be successful. And then, cause yeah, you don't want to like say, you know, I'm not great with ages with like what, but like four-year-old maybe is like participating in like a fun little soccer game. You're, it's probably more important to make them enjoy that and like want to do it again in the future. But then you get to like maybe eight years old, you start, you know, doing more competitive based. I don't know if those are good ages or not. You can correct yeah, and me. I, and I'd have to look at the model really, but it, it's all about stages and it's all about the, the level of, of sport too, right? And so it depends on where the child goes. You're starting in like that friendly, um, play-based, fun, joy type of, you know, environment where kids are just having fun, moving around a lot, developing different skill sets and, and feeling good about themselves and confident. Right. And then eventually as the child becomes more specialized and we start introducing those more skillful play and, and, um, tactics and rules and things, then you start to kind of move towards the competitiveness. So I don't know if there's a magic age. I just, I think it depends on, it depends on the sport. It depends on the individual. It depends on, it depends on the league. It just, yeah, it depends yeah. on where, where the children, yeah, go. But I can tell you with a four-year-old, <laughs> he wouldn't be too impressed if they were kind of winners or losers at the start. I mean, it's, you know, that would, that would probably, um, yeah, it, it would serve to kind of disengage him probably if everyone else were given kind of medals and he wasn't. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, you know, kids, I, I think, do think kids need to learn failure and to be okay with failure or being okay if someone takes the ball off them in soccer, or if they, you know, miss and like, they, they have to know how to be okay with that and manage that and become resilient and kind of get back out there and keep playing. Yeah. Right. Cause later in life, that's going to happen all the time. Like once you're not a kid anymore, the world isn't going to be so nice in a lot of situations. So learning how to deal with that is extremely important, I think, through development. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about child directed play too, right? Because I think, you know, and as a parent, I think we can all be guilty of this, but as parents, you want your the best for your kids. You want them to succeed in every aspect of life. And 
you know, parents have, I guess, over time become helicopter parents where they're wanting to ensure the safety of their child in every situation, make sure that they're succeeding and getting into the best schools and all of that. And the children are not really having a lot of say in those decisions. They're not having a lot of control. And so when it comes to them struggling or failing, they don't know how to deal with that. They've, they've, you know, a lot of them haven't been in a situation where they've chosen their own activities or directed their own things and, and failed at them and learned through the failure and bounced back. And I think that's why we, we tend to see a lot of young people kind of struggling with mental health issues too, because of the, I don't know, just over time, the, the lack of understanding on how to deal with that, the lack of resilience, and then just the struggle, right? Um, yeah, I actually had uh, written down helicopter moms <laughs> in terms of like hindering development. Uh, and dads maybe too, but yeah. And dads, yeah. So that's just like yeah. the classic uh, term I remember hearing from when I was younger. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I think in terms of me, just like personal story, I was very much in an environment of unstructured outdoor play. Like my dad lives on a lake. Like he still lives the same place. We were always like running around the woods, like driving dirt bikes, go-kart, like just off-road stuff and like getting hurt, like, you know, getting banged up here and there. But like, we were always, you know, I'm here today. (laughs) I'm alive. And definitely like at the time, people would view it like, holy shit, like those Bishop boys are like, you know, they're crazy out there. But I think a lot of good came from that in terms of learning that young and then kind of learning from that and just continually doing that throughout childhood. And then like teenage years, you know, experimenting with alcohol and stuff, like there's definitely a a fine balance of that. Like obviously don't start too young, but like I think if you wait till 19 and you're at university and you drink for the first time, personally, I've witnessed a lot of, you know, people go off the rails that maybe weren't kind of able to do that in a safe environment in their like adolescent years. Whereas like I was able to do that. And like, so by the time I got to university five, six years ago, I I didn't like go off the rails at all. I already kind of knew how to manage that and like not, take it too far um so i think that kind of like it definitely carries through life but there's a there's a fine balance of like not controlling everything your kid does and like letting them take risks but being like reasonable about it yeah and you're right i mean i i have a colleague um who i kind of have borrowed her exercise from but whenever I've seen her present audiences, she kind of asks, you know, describe to me, close your eyes and think about your favorite play activities. Where were you? Who were you with? What were you doing? Any senses, all of that. And I always find it interesting, um, depending on the audience, particularly with students as I'm getting older and you guys are all staying the same age, but you know, the different kind of cohorts, right. That you see. And in some have had similar experiences to me where I've, you know, my favorite memories were playing in the ravine near our house back in Ontario, where I grew up. And we would go down all of us neighborhood kids and we'd explore down there, down by the lake and roam around the neighborhood and all the neighbors kind of knew everyone. And 
you know, we needed to be home at a certain time. Um, and we were, we were with each other. So our families felt pretty safe and secure. And so that was central, a central part of me growing up, similar to you kind of having experiences outdoors and taking risks and negotiating things. Um, you know, we got ourselves into risky situations, um, all the time, but, you know, had to figure out how to, how to negotiate through them. And so when you see more and more students talk about the restrictions that they've had, um, in terms of kind of having that freedom to go outdoors in Rome or, you know, the limited independent mobility, only being able to go in their backyard or on their own street or and not having those freedoms and negotiating risks, you, you, you are seeing how much kids are missing out on in terms of learning and negotiating risks and becoming more resilient. Um, you know, I hope through all of the efforts around outdoor play and risk-taking now um, that's happening, hopefully we'll start to see a reversal where more and more kids will start to have more of the childhood like we had. Um, but there's a lot of things that have changed over that period of time that are really hard to change. So the way that our environments are structured or built environments and cars on the road and, you know, just unsafe places for kids to play or, um, you know, even, even perceptions of parents where if they're seen as letting their kids, kids go to the park by themselves or roam the neighborhood, other parents may call them a bad, bad parent. You know, there's all these, all these factors that play into um, this balance of, of giving kids that independent mobility and license to kind of play. And, yeah, and all of the, like, like you're saying, like societal factors um, and just technology too. Um, the reward systems and the brain go crazy from video games and stuff. Now, like it's hard to, that stuff is like just a part of most of society. Now it's just like having TVs and screens and all this stuff that like are designed to make our reward centers go off like crazy. So it's, you're also battling this like very easy reward of sitting in the living room and like, just having a ton of fun on a video game versus having to get up and go outside and like be creative enough to make your own fun. So it's like, it's also battling that. And the other point I was thinking when you said that about um, like what other people think, it's kind of crazy if you think about how much you would do in life if you didn't have these like cultural implications kind of being put on you and these expectations put on you from society. There's a lot of like very mundane or like, like in an unimportant things that are kind of just like a construct of the way people should behave that prevent people from doing all kinds of things like that aren't, it's not like, you know, I wanted to do heroin, but I didn't because society says it's bad. Like, obviously there's things that are, you shouldn't do because there's a reason why society is, you know, put these labels on it, but like things like that, where people just think, Oh, you shouldn't let your kid go to the park. It's like, well, why, like, why do you think that? And a lot of the time people don't know why they think the things they do. It's just kind of been something that got put in their head over time or by many people. And then they just believe it. So like sometimes you, you can ask people, what they think about something or why it makes them feel a certain way. And if you keep asking why, eventually you just get to, well, it's just because that's what I think, or 
well, it's just because I, I feel like that. It's like, okay, but why do you feel like that? And they can't, it takes a lot of introspection to kind of like unlock all of these, these preconceived ideas we've had. So I think that ties directly into like what you were saying with other people preventing parents from wanting to let their kid do that. Well, you never want to be seen as a bad parent. Um, you know, there is a woman called um, Lenora Skinowski who I, I follow on Twitter, um, and she wrote a book called Free Range Kids and um, is very much about advocating for children's right to independent mobility um, and had an experience. Of, I think it was in New York where she allowed her eight or nine-year-old children to kind of ride the subway um, and got a lot of flack for it right? Because people, and people called her all sorts of horrible things, right? That she was an unfit mother putting her kids, you know, in danger. And, and she has countered that and grown a real movement to say that, you know, and it really depends on your situation and on, on your children. You know, she has always kind of raised her kids to navigate the subway. She, she made sure that they could go on it before and, you know, that they felt comfortable and she felt comfortable. So it's not like she just threw them on and said, have a great day, come back at the end of the day. Um, she built up that sense of kind of their own comfort and security and, and the ability to make good decisions. Right. And, and she felt comfortable, um, with, with, with doing it before, before she let them. And so, I guess my point is that, you know, when, when people are so quick to react this, these days without really understanding the situation, and I think when it comes to letting your kids have that license to kind of roam independently or play outdoors by themselves, you you have to kind of build it up and start slowly. And, it, and it's very much dependent on the child. It's dependent on your environment. It's dependent on, you know, your own comfort level, your child's comfort. But I think parents can make good decisions over time. And I think we have to, before we're quick to react, we have to think, you know, okay, you know, talk to the parent. How did you get to the, the situation where you felt comfortable enough to allow your eight-year-old to walk to school, which we see in our own neighborhood. We see, you know, eight and nine-year-olds walking to school with, in pairs. Um, and so, you know, you, sometimes you do a double take and you think, wow, like they're just roaming around, but we live in a, in a pretty good neighborhood where we, lots of people know each other, neighbors know each other. You know, the kids have obviously built up the, the skills to kind of do it safely and securely and check in with parents. And so it's, it's not that abnormal, right? Um, and so I, I think as society, we have to be more tolerant of allowing our kids that license to kind of move independently. Um, but also mindful of the environments and make sure that we're creating, you know, fairly safe environments for them to do so. Definitely. Yeah. And that's like, makes a lot of sense. You can't just, can't just watch someone 24 seven, like, like you were saying a bunch, so many skills come from letting them kind of be self-sufficient and like, you know, have a safe home for them to come back to and like, make sure the environment's not like crazy dangerous. You know, there's not like some crazy person on the loose, but like if, if all that stuff's fine, then like. Well, and traffic a, is a big a thing too, right? Traffic, Making, yeah. Yeah. Making and sure just, they have the skills to like look both ways. 
I remember hearing that a billion times as a kid. <laughs> yeah, but there are huge benefits when you do give them that independence, right? Um, so you think about active transportation, that's a huge um, factor in a child's movement throughout the day. You know, if you are able to um, find a way for your child to travel actively to school with or without you or in walking school buses or other types of things, that's one way that they can gain real independence. Um, get activity in their day and um, and develop really critical skill sets that will hopefully kind of encourage active transportation as they get older in different aspects of their life. Yeah. And definitely like a huge difference based on where you're living. Like if you're in the city compared to like the Valley, we're in Nova Scotia right now. So <laughs> if anyone's <laughs> listening from here, you'll know what I mean. Uh, but yeah, it's completely different. Like back home, well, if I'm at my dad's house, we're in the middle of the woods at a lake. Like there's no, the, the most you're going to be worried about is a wild animal and like bears or coyotes, but you're pretty good. Like they're not likely not going to do anything to you. And if, if you do, you just, I don't know, better run pretty quick, but in the city, it's a completely different concern about what might be in the environment. Like you were saying traffic and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it does. I mean, there there's so many factors that play into it, but I, I do think that as a society, we need to be less judgmental of each other and, and try to understand how together we can work to create environments that, um, you know, make it, I guess, a little bit safer for kids to move around independently and yeah, play outdoors. For sure. Um, one thing, I actually wrote it down from, we're, I think we'll in a second transition back and we can talk about the play project mm-hmm. um before that i remembered another thing from uh the class which maybe you mentioned this it it was a bit choppy and then it sped up so like i i heard everything but the evolution of play like how other animals like most animals have play like they play and kind of talking about like the skills it develops, so like problem solving, creativity, learning how to use your body, uh, confidence, all of these things. It's actually like an evolutionary advantage. Like it's a, it's a critical part of development, not just exercise, but like you were saying unstructured outdoor play. And then you throw in the nature component of like our affinity towards nature. Like we evolved in nature, getting back in nature is really good. Like it brings your nervous system back down to more parasympathetic, you're less stressed, reduce cortisol, all of these very beneficial things. And you combine that with the skills uh, kids are getting from it. So it's, it's more than just like a new concept. It's actually evolved in DNA of most animals. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, there's a great video again, a couple of my colleagues are in it. Um, CBC docs, which I show a lot. Um, and I think David Suzuki narrated it, but it was the, it's called the power of play. Um, and it gets at all that play, you know, is present in all animals. So it starts with some scientists who have actually kind of looked at play behavior in different animal species and, um, you know, wondered about the rationale for it. You know, what are these animals getting through these different types of play and realizing there's huge benefits to it. And then the video um, switches to look at play behavior in 
um, in humans and, you know, in children and, and um, some work by my colleague, Dr. Brissoni and another colleague, Dr. Sandsetter in Norway, um, who both look at risky play. And so they, they do, they talk about that, you know, children have this inborn desire and need to kind of seek out um, kind of thrilling types of play, right? And anyone who's had kids can see that my own two kids you know the stuff that they do you think well, why are you doing this right why are you like climbing up this tree off right right onto like the you know the limb of this tree and dangling and trying to hang upside down off of stuff or scaling huge things right they just they love that thrill and that excitement and that sense of a little bit of fear and um in the video um yeah, Dr. Sansitter talks about, you know, that scary, funny feeling of being in those, in those risky situations. Um, but it is, it's inborn. And, and there's that desire and that natural need to kind of seek out those situations and, um, and learn from them. And play is the same, right? So I think, you know, we talked about a lot of things and you mentioned the increased pull of technology. So you take an infant or a toddler, um, they're going to want to play. I mean, they have that inborn natural desire to play. They're going to want to play and play is, play is central to learning. And I think the problem is, is that as children start to see technology and screens all around us, we are constantly on our screens. It's how we are communicating now. It's, it's everywhere, right? They start to pick that up. Um, and of course, children model the people around them. They have that influence and they start to kind of the more ex exposed they are, they start to see the, the pull of it and it can become addictive. And when it becomes too addictive, children start to kind of disengage from the outdoors and nature um, and start to prefer kind of indoor screen-based activities. But it doesn't start out that way, right? And so I think that's the problem in how we, our environment has evolved over time and technology um, has really, put barriers up in place for for kids to kind of get outside and play or for adults to kind of give children opportunities to kind of go outside or go outside themselves yeah um, so it, it's yeah it's there's so many factor things that factor into it but it you're right it, it does go back to the fact that we are built to play we are built to kind of go out and take risks we are you know built and get huge benefits out of being in nature and it's essential to our health um, and as we started to move away from that over time, we started to see real detriments in terms of our health and development. Yeah. It's so. just another, like, it's another factor kind of like I was saying earlier of like how society is pulling away kind of from what our bodies are meant to be doing. Um, anyone who's gone, if anyone's gone for like a hike recently in nature, you know, how good you feel after, like, you're just like kind of at peace. Like I, uh, when I was home, I went for a walk in the woods, like after 15 to 30 minute walk, like you're so much more relaxed. And part of that's obviously from like just moving, but like fresh air, nature, green around you, like you feel the difference. And if you haven't, if you guys haven't been out for a hike in a while and you've just been inside a gym, like go for a hike on your rest day. If that's, if that's what you do, like, it's really good for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. And I think, and I think we, we all, we know it. Um, 
I think we just get trapped in the cycle of inactivity, right? And, and a lot of our, our lives are in environments that where we are sedentary. So, um, you know, I'm standing now doing this interview with you, right? This podcast, it's a little a small thing, but for most of the morning I've been sitting. And I'm, I'm a, sitting right now. So. Yeah, and I'm a health <laughs> researcher, right? Yeah. And so I too get stuck in the sitting all day and even writing about outdoor play or reviewing outdoor play things or preparing lectures on outdoor play in nature. And yet I'm sitting all yeah. day long while doing it. So it, it can be hard to kind of disengage from that center activity, but you're right. You, we have to, we have to make it a priority. Maybe we need to block it off in terms of our, our day, create like a block where like you would do for anything else with your work, you know, because getting outside into nature or just getting moving is critical just like and it needs to be seen just as critical as anything else that you're doing but yeah um also like thinking of um what's it called switch it's by chip and dan heath I actually we talked about in business school but it's like called uh making change when change is hard or something mm-hmm. um and it's all about the how to make things happen uh, the best way possible by appealing to the way the brain kind of works, which is like you have you, the rational part of you, and it's like the rider and the elephant analogy. So the rider's the rational part that's like making decisions and the elephant's the emotional part that has habits and all this stuff. You can't really, your willpower is not strong enough to force that elephant to do what it doesn't want to do for too long. And then also the third part is the path you're on. So like a big part of the analogy is shaping the path. So the elephant already knows where to go. So if you can like implement things into your environment that make it easy for you to be more active or get outside, like replace this desk chair with a exercise ball and like, you know, a standing desk or put your running shoes by the door or like your hiking bag by the door, just little things like that. So it's really easy. Like you don't even have to think you're like, Oh, it's right there. I'll just go for a quick walk instead of opening the closet can be the easiest thing to do, but like the hardest thing to do, like for, uh, for when I want to play guitar, I put a, a wall mount up for my guitar to hang on because if it's in the case, if I'm walking by the living room, I'm significantly less likely to go open that guitar case and play versus just taking off the wall. It's these little things that like psychologically are hard to do. So like implementing that for like yourselves, but then also for like people with kids, for your kids, like making the environment very uh, much favoring play, outdoor play, exercise movement, like, you know, exercise balls sitting around. I'm sure kids would have fun on those, you know, stuff like that. So just a, a book I thought of. I think it, it's called Switch. I've heard of like that one Ch- before. Chip and Dan Heath. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is the uh, uh, the one of the things in the book. This mom, in order to get her kid to put toys away, the kid had a bunch of like trucks and cars. She could never get him to clean up after himself, so she taped yellow tape onto like the the dresser and made them parking spaces. And said, okay, make sure you park all your car, all of your cars, like when you're done playing. And then that solved the problem. It made it into something that's more like 
fun and easier to comprehend than cleaning up is like a chore. So like doing yeah, that. That's a good trick. <laughs> yeah, maybe implement that one. <laughs> maybe I need the... to use that one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Quick, uh, actually, quick plug. So you're welcome, Alex. This is my brother. Um, I'll, I guess I'll recommend it to you because you might find this really interesting. And then anyone listening, my brother just started a podcast and he's more into like therapy, psychology. He uses one called IFS, Internal Family Systems. I don't know if you've heard of that. No. Very different, um, kind of newer, I think, compared to other types. Uh, but he has a podcast now. And I think his second episode, which disclaimer, I've only listened to the first one. I haven't listened to the second one, but he has a IFS specialist on about like parenting and stuff and like this, the psychological side of things. So I can send that to you if you want to expand your horizons in terms of that stuff. (laughs) That sounds Um, interesting. Yeah. And anyone else, maybe I'll link that uh, in the description. So again, you're welcome, Alex, (laughs) quick (laughs) plug for you. But I think it's it was pretty applicable to what we've been talking about with like the psychology of like development and all of this stuff. Um, and if you want to learn about IFS, you can just listen to his podcast for anyone listening. And I can send that to you, Perfect. Michelle, Thank if you, you want after this. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Let's just to kind of, you know, semi finish things off here. The like, what is the play project? Um, what is loose parts? And we've kind of touched on the play side of things, but the P-L-E-Y stands for something else. So just want to explain that and like kind of what you guys found through using loose parts and like what those are. Yeah. So the play project, um, that's kind of what really got me into the world of outdoor play. Um, It was developed uh, with my colleague, Dr. Sarah Kirk at at Dalhousie, and I um, put in a proposal to the Lawson Foundation. Um, They had this outdoor play strategy, so a call for organizations kind of across Canada to put in um, funding uh, proposals um, to kind of support children's unstructured outdoor play. So we we had decided to put in one to really look at the value of unstructured play to enhance children's physical literacy. I talked a little bit about physical literacy earlier, but um, what it is is children's kind of confidence, motivation, um, physical confidence, so their movement skills, and then the knowledge and understanding um, to value and take responsibility for physical activity for life. And it's this, you know, broader, more holistic concept to get at um, um, making sure that, you know, individuals um, have the skill sets to be active for life. And so, we hadn't seen a lot in the literature to look at whether unstructured outdoor play, so letting kids kind of direct their own play, um, not ha- not it, it's not structured in any way, it's not adult directed, but it's a child's direction, whether that enhances children's physical literacy. And the loose parts, um, so loose parts are materials that kids can kind of move in any way that they want. Um, so there's lots of different things that can be a loose part, but Um, you know, cardboard boxes or tires or rope or buckets or balls or um, wooden planks or stumps or all sorts of different things. It can be natural or man-made. And we had seen a lot of work in Nova Scotia before that looking at introducing loose parts into children's uh, learning environments. So after school settings and childcare settings and even schools. 
And through uh, chatting with colleagues, we'd heard about, you know, the benefits they had brought to children's um, health and development. So, you know, their their socio-emotional health. So when they're playing with loose parts um, and playing with loose parts with others, they're learning how to negotiate and build things together and develop relationships. And the psychological impacts, you know, when they're manipulating all these different materials and building things, they're developing um, problem solving and creativity and all sorts of things. But there hadn't been as much work on the physical side of things. So we'd seen some evidence that loose parts had contributed to children's movement, but not really their looking at their fundamental movement skills, um, which is one of the things that we wanted to look at in addition to the other components of physical literacy. So. Yeah, so the play project, what we did is we, it was a loose parts, outdoor loose parts play intervention. So we worked with 19 uh, childcare centers throughout Nova Scotia. Um, Some of them just continued on with their regular outdoor play within the childcare centers. And then in half of them, we um, gave them loose parts to kind of integrate into the environment. So so half of them was control group and then the other yeah. half was loose and then the half was intervention, intervention. Yeah. yeah so by having a control group we were able to look at the real kind of impact you know in the intervention sites um and yeah that's what so that's what we did we you know we talked to the um, early childhood educators about the value of loose parts play we trained them in how to integrate them into the environment um we talked to them about physical literacy and then we documented you know the impact of the intervention Um, and so it was a six-month intervention Um, we have a ton of data that we're (laughs) kind of writing up now but um, when we when we did focus groups and interviews with educators that really um, kind of revealed the most powerful data in terms of the impact of this and so we brought educators together kind of midway through the intervention and then at the end and they had um, taken photos of the kids playing with the loose parts throughout and also documented what was happening in the photos and how it contributed to physical literacy and also risk-taking with the play and so we brought them in they got to mix with educators from different childcare centers and we said tell us what's happening in your photo um and the stories that we heard were unbelievable. So we have all of this audio recorded data, which we've transcribed and we're still trying to pull through now, but we're hearing that, you know, these kids just built these unbelievable things with loose parts. Um, one child built an airplane runway. Um, you know, another child, other children were taking the wooden planks and building teeter-totters and others were stacking milk crates and then figuring out how to climb up on the milk crates or building these elaborate also courses or um, sliding down the slides on bread trays like just you know like just so many different creative ways that they use them and the benefits that we were hearing from the loose parts play were unreal like you know educators were saying all the things that I had mentioned the creativity and the relationship building um, and the negotiation problem solving all that was how it coming out older kids were mentoring younger kids they were being kinder there weren't as many kind of behavioral problems um kids were just having so much joy and playing together and kids who had typically played by themselves were now being drawn into play with others and younger kids or different other kids were helping you know other kids master situations that they were very nervous about and 
you know, and once they had, you know, you saw the real joy that that child got in trying out a difficult activity and, and conquering it. Right. So like Just, a really big socialization aspect. To it, it was unbelievable. There were kids whose language, the first language was in English and parents had said that their English language skills had improved through loose parts play things we'd never anticipated communication and stuff because they were drawn into the play and so the yeah. by being drawn into the play they had to learn how you know to communicate so just unbelievable things and again it just really you know reinvigorated or, or kept alive kind of my passion for for outdoor loose parts play research um and i had young kids at the time so when i was doing the play project you know my kids were really young and so I was seeing more and more the value of kind of making sure that children had access to this type of play. So we did that. And then we got some funding um, to do, we called it the summer of play. And I can give you links if your viewers want to see any of this stuff, but. Yeah, I'll definitely at the end, get a bunch of links and just link them in the description. Yeah. And so the summer of play is up on our play outside NS website, but um. What it was, it was a campaign over the summer of 2019, and we wanted to kind of educate the public about the value of outdoor loose parts play. And so we hosted a whole bunch of different events. We had my colleague, Dr. Brosoni, come and talk to earlier stakeholders at the library and at Dal about outdoor play and risk taking. But the biggest thing that we did was a, um, a community-based um, loose parts pop-up playground. And we just released a video just last week about it. And it's up on the Outdoor Play Canada website. So I'll, th I'll throw that link in there for your viewers as well. Yeah, sweet. But um, the video was done by A for Adventure, uh, which is a, a local uh, company here. And it's unbelievable. Like it just, again, really captures, um, you know, the value of Outdoor Loose Parts Play. Uh, we, we held it on the Commons in July of 2019. And we had over 200 families and educators and members of the community um, come to the event. We had a beautiful day, so we were really lucky. Um, and just, you know, unbelievable um, play experiences happening um, on that day. And just, you know, what kids were, were doing with the loose parts, the things that they built, it was just unbelievable. So um, that really sparked a lot of excitement. And again, it's really kind of become, I guess, my research um, agenda or, you know, my my program it's really focused on you know this concept of unstructured play with loose parts and how do we integrate into different settings so where we're going next is trying to um to integrate outdoor loose parts play in schools and before and after school programs because we we've seen the benefits within the childcare setting so now we're trying to see how do we do this within the school system and before and after school programs and what other types of benefits do we see there yeah because if you could well, first of all, it's always awesome. Like when you get results, you might've been expecting, but then all of these other insane, like implications from something like that, where you think like, yeah, it's probably good. Or like, it's probably really important, but then to see like all these communication skills and like improving languages of, you know, people who aren't speaking English. So all of that stuff's super like uh, powerful, but if you could get this on a, a large scale in schools, it could have a, you know, generational impact on like in, increasing social skills and communication skills and uh, 
you know, teamwork and just all of the things that you kind of listed, it'd be very interesting to see that happen on a population level to see how uh, like the su- success rate of the average kid is as they get older. Yeah. And so the UK is really leading this. Um, those who are interested, I can send you a bunch of links, but um, the OPAL program, Outdoor Play and Learning has been going on for probably, I don't know, a decade or more. And I, I talked to the director um, a couple of weeks ago about it to see how he was managing outdoor loose parts play during COVID, which is still happening, which is great to see. And there's strategies in place for how to do that safely. But they have... Um, schools have invested in this. So they're in like hundreds of schools across the UK, um, deliver outdoor lease parts play. And again, it's that systemic, you know, approach where it's integrated into lots of different schools. It's right in the school improvement plan. They dedicate funding to it every year to make it possible. They get community buy-in and parent buy-in to make it happen. And all the, you know, educators support it. And so it's, that it's taken years and years to kind of get that going, but that's kind of the vision for Canada. And there's some schools in Ontario with a colleague um, leading that, Um, but it takes time, right? It it takes time to make schools health promoting environments. And my colleague, Dr. Sarah Kirk, that's really her focus. And so hopefully in Nova Scotia through that work that she's doing and the partnerships we have, we'll be able to see some change over the next five or 10 years where this starts to become more systematic. Um, Yeah. And I mean, like outdoor play, it's not the worst thing during COVID times. Well, yeah. And if um, I'll, I'll give your viewers the link to outdoor play Canada, because that's what I wanted to mention there. They're kind of the go-to website for all things outdoor play related. Um, And they have a whole host of resources on, how important it is to get kids outdoors, particularly during, um, you know, the time of COVID, um, how you can transition learning into the outdoors, how you can play with loose parts outdoors in a safe way. Um, There's research over COVID showing that kids have become less active and they've actually been playing outdoors less and spending more time in front of screens since COVID. Um, And differences in, in terms of neighborhood and according to kind of policies that either support the value of getting outdoors or do not. Um, And so they, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of kind of push and advocacy even more so because of COVID on the value of outdoor play. Um, So it's, you know, it, it, it really is moving in the right direction. And I think, um, you know, I, I think, there just needs to be a, a shift in terms of thinking in some of our big, institutional like settings right so it's hard to have change in schools but because of covid schools have had to shift enormously many schools have taken kids outside to learn now so kids are spending in some cases in schools more time outside and learning outside and having access to nature and playing Um, so it you know it is possible but it's not always easy so we just need to kind of i guess work together and and try to figure out the best way to do this and just be open to the idea that getting kids outside and shifting learning towards the outdoors is really going to be a good thing to benefit kids yeah and even like people with a yard like even if it's a small yard during lockdown if they could just put some loose parts out in their backyard you know they're still not leaving their property like they're still following 
all the safety protocols, but, you know, put some old tires out there and a couple wooden planks and, you know, whatever out rope and stuff like that, then they can easily just implement loose parts by doing that and at least get some movement happening. Well, we have a bunch, our kids have been exposed to it for years now, but after our summer play event, um, we brought home a bunch of tires. So I said, let's, you know, we brought a bunch of them back, um, but we just got them from Scotia tires right on the highway. (laughs) And so you can get them. We brought them back. We had some wooden planks, we had tarps, we have a, a soccer net um, and some rope. And it's amazing what the kids can do with this. And during lockdown, even in the snow, they're outside building the craziest things and doing all sorts of things with these parts. So, you know, it may seem like just junk around your house or things you wouldn't think of to put outdoors. But, you know, if, if you do have access to space and you are a little bit creative um, and get these materials out doors like it is really amazing to see how the kids will use them and how it enhances their play so I, I don't know I mean that's why I hope more and more of that starts to happen um, loose parts is still kind of a you know it's not a new term but lots of people haven't even heard about them before or really know what they they are but I think I'll send you the link to our video as a as a blog for what we do and hopefully Great. that convinces people that um of the value of it yeah after i'll get all your contact info whatever like any research links or how people can find more like to learn about it uh one kind of i guess question would be i guess in canada maybe less of an influence but the political financial implications of like school systems contracting out like playgrounds and stuff like there's there's money kind of influencing that. And like, there's people maybe that don't understand uh, free uh, loose parts and stuff. Has that been an, an issue at all? Or has like, like obviously politics are always, they, they come into play with anything at the end of the day. It's, it's what one person wants versus what someone else wants. And then who's making the final decision. Has that impacted the, you know, the message at all or not the message, but the, the uh the environment perception of it yeah and the environment yeah it's an interesting question i i read this book by the director of opal so michael follett um and his opal program and so he talks about how in the uk there was a lot of um reliance on getting these um you know these static play structures right and so fundraising efforts um, a lot of which happened through the parent, um, you know, the parent associations, right? The school board parent associations, they'd fundraise and they'd, they'd raise money towards this new playground design. And they would go based on these huge kind of fixed playground structures. And that's what would be put in. Yet, you know, there's so much evidence that kids get bored of those very quickly. In his book, he writes about how in the UK, it rains a lot. And so for a lot of the school year, these kids were not even allowed on them because they got too slippery or it would get too cold and slippery and it was just not safe. And so, you know, you invest all this money into these playground structures and then kids are not even allowed on them or things get broken and unsafe. Um, So whereas you look at, you know, loose parts, 
um, and even getting storage said for loose parts and even replacing loose parts because they're going to get broken or um, you know lost or destroyed kind of over time um, but far cheaper than a lot of these fixed playground structures and they create far better opportunities for outdoor play um, you know enhances the quality of outdoor play so I I think it's again around education right um, you know and, and changing the perception or changing the more the norms as we start to see more natural playground designs and we see a lot of them that happening throughout Nova Scotia there's some great parks where you know there's these natural playgrounds and natural playground features showing up in schools and lots of schools using these parts the more we see that and promote that hopefully that will start to become the new norm and then we'll start to shift away from you know the fixed equipment yeah That's what and I, I hope. hopefully yeah that yeah. i think it'd have massive like beneficial implications on just society as a whole uh one thing also that i think of like uh parks and recreation the tv show i don't know if you've ever watched that but there's a scene um where the the main characters addressing like a public forum and using a bunch of statistics and like research and like research terms and stuff and everyone's like what the hell and then the other guy goes up and just like says a bunch of nonsense but like people like can see like flashy visuals and stuff so to a certain point, depending on who's like receiving the message, it's almost like you need to translate the information and data and like all of these things into a message that paints an emotional picture for someone to really like yeah. get the gravity. So like using like anecdotes and things like that and like uh, like personal stories and having like testimonials and stuff can be way more powerful than showing like, you know, look at this this paper, there's an 80% increase in, you know, whatever communication skills, people are like, Oh, data, I don't like data, but you if you can give them like, you know, the, uh, the kid whose English wasn't first language and show like, you know, they develop the increase, like, a more of emotional picture for people, they can, they'll probably be a lot more likely to, to want to do these types yeah. of things well and i think you know we spent a lot of time getting this video out there but um you know we've sent it it's up on as i said outdoor play canada's website which is you know the the go-to place for everything outdoor play related right so it was a huge thing getting it up there and active for life and other big organizations have kind of sent it around social media um and when you watch it you get that emotional message like there are people in the uk saying to me this is unbelievable, like what these kids are expressing through the play and how what you've captured by the children, by the parents, by other educators, like, you're right, you have to kind of see that in action and live to say, okay, this is what you mean by loose parts play, like I get it now. And it yeah. was only until I was actually immersed you know, I rec I saw the benefits of loose parts play and I heard educators talking about it through our play project, but like I became really, really emotional being there on that day and seeing it unfold right in front of my eyes um, and then watching the video again, right? And I think a lot of people get it when they see it and they're immersed in it or they can see a video or something of it because you're right. Yeah. So maybe that's what we need. We need more of those visual tools or videos to show to schools to say, have you considered this? And yeah, I think 
here's how you do it, right? Like, here's your fixed structure. Here's a video of what happens like in the rain or, you know, when kids get bored of it or it breaks down. Here's what happens when you put loose parts in and what how the play transforms and the benefits it has to all kids, which you'd never expect. And here's how much this costs versus this and how much it takes to implement. And then they start to see, okay, this is possible. We can do it. We want to do it. And that's what's taken off in the UK. So it's trying to figure out how to bring that here. Yeah. And I think the message, like using a video, especially a very like well put together video with like, you know, emotion and testimonials and visually seeing how something's actually working and having the gravity of that um, is much better. Like even just to think of a, an example psychology based on like enjoying something like if you're scrolling through people who scroll through Instagram, let's say like there's all of these things, there's only so much things someone can process in a day. Like it's very hard to read a paper or an email, a long email with a bunch of words and stuff. But if someone gives you a nice entertaining like video that you can sit back and like just enjoy, you're Mm -hmm. so much more likely to take that information in than like if you're already tired and like there's words versus this flashy video. Like, so bring it back to Instagram. If there's a video on Instagram or like a photo with like a huge, you know, typed up post, I would bet 98% of people are going to probably stop and watch the video, but they won't stop and watch the long word things that are the the post. So I think just as a uh, mechanism of delivery, I think that type of thing, like a, a nice video that still contains all the information just in a different way is super powerful for people receiving the message. Well, in science, I mean, research is changing, right? We're seeing more researchers create infographics to get across their study findings or publish in the Conversation Canada or, you know, put together videos or other ways of knowledge dissemination rather than just the the long, dry academic article, right? Um, Because you do want to reach a a different audience who is getting bombarded with lots of information and you got to find ways to capture the attention of, of, of people when you, you have a lot thrown at you. Right. So, yeah, yeah. That's what we were trying to do anyway. So I'll send you this video. I'll link in the description. Okay. Well, that wraps up everything in terms of like, uh, I think, you know, development and stuff that we had, uh, was there anything else you wanted to note about outdoor play or, or development or anything like that before I, I have one last little thing here. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having me on. And um, the only other thing that I would say is uh, um, just for people to check out the Outdoor Play Canada website, um, you know, if they are interested in the topic. And, um, you know, we've got the Play Outside NS website. Um, so I can give you that link as well, which uh, talks a little bit more about, about the stuff that we're doing. And make sure you, yeah, you kind of, integrate time outdoors into your day um it's hard to do it but it's just so important especially now during covid and um you know the i don't know the the uncertainties and the stress and everything that we're all dealing with it's even more important to make sure we take care of our own mental health and physical health and get outside definitely all right here's the last part so i have five 
rapid fire questions for you. Okay. <laughs> um, and I just do these at the end of every episode. And yeah, it's kind of just a fun little thing to see how people's they're the same or similar questions each time. So when you are ready, I will start rapid firing. Okay. I'm okay. good. <laughs> what is one book uh, you would recommend for everyone to read? Um, <sighs> Free to Learn by Peter Gray. Okay. Um, out, out on outdoor play. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> and I'll get all you can send that to all of these things to me after and we'll we'll remember okay. them. Um, okay. If you could live forever, would you? Why or why not? Oh, if I could live forever, would I? Why and why not? Um, I don't know. No, I don't think so. Because then it would be tough to be around and to see everyone I love pass away. So I think that would be hard. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, if you could be remembered for one thing a thousand years from now, what would it be? Um, probably just the impact I've had on my own family, right? Being a good mom, a good person, maybe helping students achieve some sort of goal that they've had. I don't know. Those things nice. kind of matter to me. That's good. Uh, what's one daily habit you think everyone should start doing to improve themselves? So just one get outside. thing. <laughs> Easy one. Get outside, get into nature. <laughs> yeah. And what's one thing you wish you knew 10 years ago? Oh my gosh. One thing I wish I knew 10 years ago. Um, I don't know. To I guess probably just to be okay when plans don't, always work out the way you hope they would and maybe not to take life so seriously. Um, as a student, I think you can get really wrapped up in, um, you know, studying and always trying to just um, all the pressure of academia and everything. And when you look back on that, it's important to do that, but it's also important to kind of take time for yourself and make sure that you have, you know, time with others and, I don't know, all those other types of things have like a balanced approach to life and, and be okay if things don't always work out to plan. Um, because it can be that can you learn stuff from it and can be exciting to see where life takes you. So maybe be awesome. more minded and <laughs> less worried about things. <laughs> Sweet. Um, cool. That's everything. So if there's any like uh, places people can find you that isn't a long link, uh, you can say it now, if not, I can just, I'll link it all in the, the show notes below, but is there any, like, do you have any social media that you promote this on, or is it mainly through your, uh, organizations website. you work with? Yeah. So I'll send you the links to the websites. Um, we're at, um, at play outside NS is our Twitter feed. And then I'm just okay. at, at Dr. Michelle stone on Twitter. Um, and yeah, and then I'll just send you the, the website link, the link to the video and then Outdoor Play Canada. Cool. That's probably enough and you for can, people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just send me your, those two Twitter accounts too and I'll, I'll link those. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, All right. Thanks a lot for coming on. It was, it was a fun podcast. I actually, I enjoyed talking about all this stuff. I think it's really important for people soon to have kids or people who have kids now to like, to hear this type of message. Yeah. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat.
It's been good. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this sixth episode of the Elevation Podcast. Make sure you go check out Dr. Stone and some of her research in the links I will provide in the show notes. Uh, Give her a follow on Twitter, and I'll see you guys next time. Thank you.